This is Anne Fremantle introducing another of WNYC's PEN, P-E-N, portraits. What is PEN, P-E-N? PEN is an independent world association of writers. The initials, P-E-N, stand for poets, playwrights, essayists, editors, novelists, and by implication of the initials for all writers. PEN was founded in 1921 in London by John Galsworthy, who became its first international president. American PEN was founded in 1922 with Booth Tarkington as its first president. The present president of International Pen is the veteran British novelist V.S. Pritchett. The present president of American Pen is the distinguished American novelist Jose Kosinski. Pen has over 80 centers in 60 countries of Europe, North and South America, Asia and Africa. World membership is around 10,000. American Pen, which has its headquarters in New York but draws its members from all over the United States, has 1,500 members. Membership is by invitation of the membership committee extended to published writers of demonstrative accomplishment. What is PEN for and what does PEN do? PEN exists to promote worldwide friendship and intellectual cooperation among men and women of letters. PEN is a purely literary association, working in a practical way on all matters of concern to writers generally. Better protection of literary copyright, better deals for translators, workshops for beginning writers in underprivileged areas, lectures and receptions for foreign authors coming here. Pen has no politics, but it is against the imprisonment of writers for political reasons, and Pen members in the Pen Charter pledge themselves, quote, to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and the community to which they belong. Pen is therefore against all censorship of the written word. Speaking today over WNYC radio, under the auspices of Pen, P-E-N, are two very honoured guests indeed. Francis Stigmuller is one of our most admired men of letters. His Cocteau, a biography of Jean Cocteau, was published by Atlantic Little Brown and was the winner of the 1971 National Book Award in the Arts and Letters section. His recent Your Isadora, a biography of Isadora Duncan, is a nominee in the biography section for the National Book Award in 1975. It is the love story of Isadora Duncan and Gordon Craig. In 1971, Francis Stigmuller's wife, Shirley Hazard, was also a nominee for the National Book Award, the only time a husband and wife were both nominated. Francis Stigmuller is not only a biographer and essayist, but also a novelist, a critic, and a translator. Among his earlier books are Flaubert and Madame Bovary, Maupassant, A Lion in the Path, The Grand Mademoiselle, and the deliciously amusing Flaubert in Egypt. He also translated The Owl and the Pussycat, Edward Lear's immortal poem into French, such a boon to young students of both French and English. Speaking with Francis Stigmuller over WNYC, under the auspices of Penn, is Dr. Lola Sladitz. Dr. Lola Sladitz is the curator of the Berg Collection of English and American Literature in the New York Public Library. She was educated at the Peter Basmani University in Budapest, at Columbia University, at University College London, at the Sorbonne in Paris, and at New York University. She has been since 1969. Dr. Sladitz has headed one of America's most celebrated collections of first editions, rare books, autograph letters, and manuscripts, constituting outstanding source material in English and American literature from the 15th to the 20th century. She has written many papers and books, and she and Francis Stigmuller, Dr. Lola Sladitz and Francis Stigmuller, are going to address themselves 
to the question of the role of the editor and the curator in the care of large bodies of literary papers and archives, and in the question of the physical disposition of writers' manuscripts. Now, um, Dr. Lola Sladis, perhaps you will start discussing this very serious problem in terms of your association with the Berg Collection and of um, uh, Francis Stigmuller's latest book, Your Isadora. Thank you, Mrs. Fremantle. It is I who am honored, and thank you for the generous introduction. I would say that uh, in my position, I almost said in my present condition, <laughs> a uh, pre constant preoccupation, of course, is the migration of large bodies of literary papers. It's something one has known, especially the English, over many, many centuries. And just recently, I don't know whether you're aware of how the Boswell papers finally ended up at Yale. There was that marvelous review by Professor Campbell recently about a story which is better than any whodunit. It's, it's almost lost and found department. And while um, the Burke Collection is a major source of unpublished literary papers, uh, letters, and manuscripts, and my affection lies, I suppose, with the letters. It's uh, one reason why I admire your Isadora so much for that beautifully edited correspondence between Isadora Duncan and uh, Gordon Craig, which Random House jointly published with the New York Public Library. You have a host of admirers, Mr. Stingler, right there in well, the library. It's very nice of you to say so. When the, <coughs> when the library asked whether I would care to edit the letters, there was no hesitation. I fell in love with Isidore Duncan immediately, and I think you can perhaps sense that in the, in what I write write about her. They are marvelous letters, the letters of a young Isidore Duncan. She was 26 years old, a charming, lovely, generous, generous woman. It was really her first uh, first real love affair, with Gordon Craig, who was then I think 30 or 32, a very handsome man indeed, very attractive, and they were they were they fell in they fell in love head over heels. He was a man of the immense egocentricity and eventually, I think, treated Isidora very badly. But the love story is a very moving one and I was very glad to be associated with it. And let me, let me say right here, my, tell you my great admiration for the New York Public Library in which I've done a great deal of research for various, uh, various of my books. It's a place where it's so easy and one can so easily and so freely get at the material. I've had European friends come to New York we're absolutely astonished by the ease with which they can find and get a book in the New York Public Library to consult. In Europe, they're so accustomed to having to have introductions and papers of all kinds. When my friends say, you mean I can simply go in, fill out a slip, and get a book? I, my answer is, you, you'll probably get it within 20 minutes, which is the, the limit they put on. We are very proud of that service still, yes. It's extraordinary. I agree with you. Extraordinary. Yes. I quite agree. I, I couldn't have written a single book. I've written a great, quite a lot of books since I came to these, uh, these United States, and I couldn't have written uh, one page of any book without the New York Public Library. It's, it's the essential tool for any writer. It's a wonderful place. Well, I would say, and I'm saying this, I know, for that totally civilized institution which is having a rough time financially, that it is for people like you that it exists. And I think all our founding fathers had that in mind, the, the beautiful building, the way we still keep adding in spite of, you know, lack of space. And um, again, I'm not trying 
too much to blow our horn, but the care we exercise, we who are the recipients of some of these extraordinary treasures, I think we are very careful in how they're handled. We know that we're going to hand them down to the next generation, where I rejoice when I see in covers a book like your Isadora, is that ultimately our belief that large bodies of valuable papers find the right editor is absolutely justified. I firmly believe that if you don't rush and if the curator also is quite watchful about and among his readers, we cannot exercise, of course, and we never take the place of literary estates. We cannot say you are admitted and you are not admitted. And although one's eye is somehow trained, you know also the perseverance, you know the kind of, excuse me, elbow grease that goes into of course. the editing, the proper editing of this kind of um, a large body of papers. Ultimately, it seems that the papers find their, their editor. Well, I thank you for saying that about this particular group of letters. The preservation of these letters by the public library, of course, is a, the result is a great pleasure to me because my enjoyment in doing the work was immense. Another time, uh, another occasion for my appreciating the preservation of documents was when I translated Flaubert's novel, Madame Bovary. All of Flaubert's first drafts for Madame Bovary have been preserved in the library at Rouen. And every once in a while, when I came upon a French word whose precise meaning as used by Flaubert was obscure to me, I could consult one of his earlier drafts, and very often he used in the early drafts a different word, which would give me a slant on the precise meaning that he gave to the word which he eventually did use. Had those documents not been not been saved, my work would have been, you know, very, very much harder. Harder. You've probably seen the Proust paperolls, haven't you? I haven't Where, seen them, no. Oh, they're quite extraordinary because they, they are very long. They really run through yards and yards, and they're the ones we know he even corrected on his deathbed. But they're written over, the last proofs are written over with a very tiny hand, and I think the scholars are still at it, trying to separate the deletions, and they, they are called pop rolls because they, <laughs> you know, that's what they are. They're I've, rolls of paper. I've seen photographs of them. Where are they kept? You know? At the Bibliothèque Nationale. In the, at the Nationale, yes. That's the hardest library to work in ever in the world. It's the slowest. <laughs> and for access, really, you have to be a commander de la Légion d'honneur before you get in. Mary Which McCarthy called it a Kafkaesque institution. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Maybe some of our readers think of us, too, as um, rather forbidding or possessive. And with Isadora, I'm sure that in the dance collection, where I think our staff is also uh, quite beautiful to even contemplate, uh, you would have not had this feeling, or did you have a feeling of possessiveness and that Everybody at the dance collection, admitted? no, everybody at the dance collection was very cooperative indeed, I must say. They, they put the originals of the letters on my, on my table. They, they employed, we employed a young, I think Random House actually employed, a former, one of the former researchers or assistants at the dance library to transcribe the letters yes. into, uh, and she typed them. Don't they have the cloak Gordon Craig wore? Or they have a hat? Don't they have some memorabilia? I don't know what they the have. Trunk? They wouldn't have that. They, they, have, have, what? The, they have Isadora's trunk. They have Isadora's trunk. Which the trunk she died in? <laughs> no, the scarf. No, the scarf they don't have the, the scarf. No. <laughs> they ha yes, they have, they have a part <laughs> of the fringe of the scarf that's 
strangled Isadora, oh, really? a part of the Red Fringe. They have uh, s- some of her costumes, and Gordon Craig said in a in a talk that he gave over BBC that her costumes were simply wisps of cheesecloth. <laughs> and when they hung on a hook, they were like whips, wisps of rags, really. But when she put them on, she transformed the rags. She, he, he said that usually it's the rags that yes. transform the person. She transformed Sometimes. the rags. And some of those rags are in a trunk in the dance collection, including also a wreath of flowers, artificial flowers, that she wore when she uh, danced a, her interpretation of Botticelli's Primavera. She often wore real flowers, fresh flowers, but when she couldn't find them, she wore this particular wreath, which is still there in the collection. Also, it's not only documents that uh, are so valuably pre- preserved, but costumes as, costumes as well. I remember visiting that marvelous, the uh, marvelous costume museum at Bath in England, which is an extraordinary place. They have the costume in which Byron was painted, his famous portrait of Byron yes, in of Albanian course. dress yes, by, by, by Thomas Phillips. That costume is there in Bath. Yes. You, can see it. you know, because of a passion, and because we're really a little bit circumscribed, because of a passion for writing, we have quite a few traveling desks and pens. We have Dickens's traveling desk. We have a cat's paw he made into a, a knife, an ivory pen knife. Oh, poor little so cat. The, yes, the little cat. <laughs> but um, in many ways, memorabilia add something to the flavor of, of the times or whatever it is. Also, if you've ever seen anyone sharpen a quill pen, have you ever seen a real English expert? There are still those who do the kind of calligraphy which requires a quill pen. And I've seen the demonstration of how you sharpen a quill pen. It's quite extraordinary. It's done with great skill, very swiftly. And the final little dash you give to the pen is very important, it seems. I tend to to give my uh, manuscripts to the Columbia University Library, which is the library of my my own university. But when I when I write a short story and I scribble over various pages and various drafts, I hesitate to give such scraps as that to the offer that to the library. But they say they want them. I was going to beg you never to feed the wastebasket. I know there is that theory that uh, you write and overwrite and then throw things away. I think some don't writers do would, some writers don't like to be shown no. up as having to having to rewrite so many times. I don't mind that, but well, it seems presumptuous to offer so many scraps of paper. But they tell me up there they do like those things, especially of for course. fiction fiction and poetry, they say, yes. where the choice of words is so important. Yes, well, it's the writer's craft. Yes. And also, every library knows what we call the laundry list. Everybody has diaries, even, you know, pocket yes. diaries day by day. And it gets uh, to be very useful later. It may not seem very helpful to you now but later on when address books or diaries as you know I don't have to tell you how important address books can be yes of course and how they can lead from one clue to the next when a biographer comes along and wants to unravel the story of your life and I think um, Mr. Stigmola is is not uh, is too modest but I think that uh, all the drafts for his stories uh, very much should be preserved whether you give them to Columbia or you give them to the Berg that's that's free choice but I certainly don't think you must ever give them to the waste paper basket. Well, no, I, I usually, agree. <laughs> I usually have. But when one writes a work of non-fiction, well, for instance, when I was putting together this uh, this book, Isidora's Letters and my comments in between, I did that in various ways, rearranging the paragraphs. That seemed to me really foolish to keep, and I did throw them away. And Kenneth uh, Loth, the the uh, chief of the uh, 
what is it called? Special Collections. Special Collections at Columbia said he is not it's not so interested in the rearrangement of nonfiction books as in the in 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 books in which the words count for so much poetry, letters and fiction. But I hope you kept your correspondence that relates to the making oh, yes, of I this did. book. I gave that uh, chiefly to the dance collection. There's a lot of the a lot of the correspondence came from Russia. There was a very helpful uh, lady in Russia named Nat- Natalia Roslavliva who uh, gave me all kinds of, of material from Russia about Isidora's uh, debut in St. Petersburg, the famous time when she introduced her barefoot dancing to St. Petersburg and had such an effect on the Russian ballet. That had not been documented before, and thanks to Madame Roslavliva, it is now documented in this book. And I thought the dance library should have those things. Yes, and we always urge every scholar to donate, I don't know whether the word scholar in your case carries the wrong implication, but uh, editors, scholars, whatever we call them, the research worker ought to preserve the documents that go into the making of a book. And I would say it's very important also in a literary research collection like ours. I'll go back to your comment on, on Madame Bovary. I think it's very important to preserve also the successive corrected proofs because you learn an awful lot also what the author, a great writer, sees in improving it up to the last minute. Well, at present, publishers are so stingy and allow you so <laughs> every pr- every change on proof is so frightfully expensive for the author. The the limits on what the publisher will pay for changes are now so so small, so so restricted that one hesitates to make any corrections on proofs at all. Really? So proofs become much less interesting than they used to be. Nobody know. could do that. Uh, the business of proof, uh, of, of uh, changes on proof, as Proust did anymore. I couldn't no. possibly afford it. Maybe it has to do with camera work, doesn't it? Because while they were setting with hand, you could still stand over the printer and say, no, take out that word. They say it has to do with expenses of all kinds. The salaries paid to, to, to their editors, all kinds of expenses. One has to be very careful indeed, especially when page proof comes along, you scarcely dare change a word. Yes. The expense is enormous. If you change... If you change a few a few words in one line or two lines, it sometimes means the resetting of a whole paragraph or a whole page, yes. all of which is charged to the author after a certain limit. When you go into another edition, a second or a third edition, we also often caution the writer to please give us the improved first edition to see where the changes were made. Well, it depends on whether it's a, a new edition or a new printing. Usually, if a book sells well, it goes into several printings. But the printing is simply a reproduction of the first printing, and one doesn't have a chance to make any changes unless no. you can do it with exactly the same number of words, the same number of characters per line. If there's a new edition, for instance, if a book, uh, in for instance in England, if a book is taken by Penguin, the paperback, the paperback firm, yes. then they give you carte blanche. You can change your book as you like, and that's very nice to be able to bring it up yes. to date because there are always mistakes. No matter how careful you are in a book, there are always mistakes. People always write you very kindly, sometimes not so kindly, but one is always glad to have the mistakes pointed out. I'm very pleased to hear you say that because one does despair with every, even at the smallest publication, and there is such a thing as the printer's devil, because you think that your final reading of your final proof is correct, and then you discover once it's in print, the printed page looks entirely different even from the last page proof. But when it comes to, excuse me. No, no, I didn't want to interrupt. When it comes to introductions also, or when you have new editions or poetry, now for instance what um, great poets include finally in their collected editions, or what poems were left out, 
we now know that Auden left out one of his best poems, the one called, one called Spain, which is only collected in a, in a paperback, in a paper edition he published in England shortly after the Spanish War. That's right, and, and you can't, it's in none of the later uh, uh, editions at all, at of all. any of his books, and not in the two-volume collected works. No, that's right. And so it's, it's very important to have the, to keep uh, the editions as they come out. And also this, this uh, question, I'm, I'm sorry I looked as if I wanted to interrupt, I just wanted to say that this question of, of um, corrections, um, I've, I don't think I've ever had a book which hadn't some, afterwards somebody writes to me and they're always right and I'm wrong, you know, it's always some, some minor date or some minor thing, but it is very important that this should be, that it should get better as it goes along, I think. And it's, that it's too bad, but not, not all the mistakes are printer's mistakes, some of the mistakes some are, of them are, yours. Are, are one's own. <laughs> I'm very grateful for paperbacks, especially the ones that do allow you to, to uh, make, make as many changes as you like. Not all paperback uh, printings will allow that. Some of them simply reprint from the uh, from the Hard original cover. from the original uh, pages. May I put in a plea there for giving copies of paperback editions to the Berg or to any library to, uh, that that one of one's choice because it, uh, uh, paperbacks are almost impossible to get again unless they unless they are reprinted. And I find that people who steal my paperbacks I hate more than people who steal my hardcovers. I couldn't be more grateful for that comment because, of course, also there are books one loves so much that uh, you will write to an edit a, a paperback editor because you can't find them in the paperback bookshops. Well, I have given away one particular title several times and now I find that I can no longer buy it either in England or in America and they do go out of print very soon. I also have in the Penguin edition, which is a very early edition of Randall Gerrell's Pictures from an Institution, which is such an Shanty absolutely... Book lovely book and uh, very often I would like to give away a, a paperback it's no longer it's only available in the antiquarian shops for, for a first edition very difficult to find and of course it costs rather more than and it is almost impossible to find pictures from an institution again is that it, not in paperback it is it is now but even there, you have to walk up and down. You know, I can't even say Fourth Avenue anymore. No. I know of one bookshop on Broadway. Yes, I discovered one up in the Columbia neighborhood where they have pictures from, from an institution. Oh. But there are these staple presents one wants to give, and you always find the right recipient. You don't find the book. And I think that's one of the, the cross-cultural books. It's it when when people come from from Europe, I think this gives a better picture of America than almost any book I know. Oh, well, it's the most amusing book besides. So funny. Yeah. One of the one of the kinds of research that I find libraries like to have are transcripts of interviews with uh, with people. And when I wrote my book on Cocteau, I interviewed really hundreds of people in France, people who had known Cocteau. I didn't use a tape recorder. I wasn't accustomed to a recorder myself, and I thought that people would tend to shy away from it. Now I think possibly I would use one, but what I did was to make notes, if I could, discreetly while we were talking, and then hurry home and, and type out my memory of the, of the interview. I had a whole sheaf of those things, which the Columbia Library was really very, very glad to have. Do you find a difference now, a, a lessening and offering of manuscripts to the library since the government has refused to allow a writer tax deduction for his material no, that he I offers? No, I believe it's a real hardship because mm. we now buy them. Many gifts that came formerly as gifts for tax deduction 
have of course lessened. It means that the burden now rests with the library to, to pay. And I believe that with a little bit of clamor, which we've all exercised, that tax law is going to be changed. Kenneth We're all certain. Excuse me. Kenneth Laugh at Columbia thinks it won't be changed for 20 years at least. Oh, really? Well, uh, he's a pessimist. He is. <laughs> I, I am, but I'm optimistic on this yeah. score because it does stifle gifts to already overburdened and very much pressed libraries. It's very unfair. I don't know whether most people, uh, most listeners know that in the past a, a writer could have his uh, manuscripts appraised and then give them at the appraised value to a library and have t tax deduction for the appraised value. Now that's not possible. Nothing... Uh, no, nothing by that one writes oneself or is sent to one as correspondence can be given ta with uh, tax-free to a library. You can deduct something. The you ink can and the paper. You can deduct You're the price of the ink the and the price paper. Of the ink and the paper. There, uh, there are two two requirements. There either there has to be the the material has to have been bought by someone who has paid you and who can then himself deduct have a tax deduction for his gift. Or if the material is left to one, so there has to be there has to be a previous financial transaction or a death before you can this get is, tax deduction. This is crippling for yeah. large institutions yeah. who who relied very much on gifts. It is crippling. But when you say is there a lessening, I would say at this point I think there is an increase in offers, and I have to exercise far more judgment because of course the income offers for the, sale. You mean for sale? Yes. The income on a fixed endowment, the way the Burke collection is endowed, is limited. Let's face it, one does not have unlimited funds, which means that in this time of recession, where the writer wishes to earn more or outside the regular royalties he has, the offers have increased. Of course, the income also, as we know, lessens the financial income. So the burden, this particular burden, hits both ways. It hits uh, on the writer's pocketbook and earnings and the library's income because we still want to acquire what we would call prime literary material, except that now what used to be a donation is a purchase. That's really awful, isn't it, that these libraries have such a small um, amount that they can spend and such a fixed amount so that supposing uh, when when somebody like Bernard Shaw dies or, or W.H. Auden the other day, um, th they can't immediately go in and preserve it for posterity. The trouble is that operational costs have gone up so much. The salaries have increased. At the same time, inflation, of course, doubles or, I would say, halves always the income. So it is more we, I think, go guilty to work. I think all of us hang our heads because we feel that we are to be blamed for a much higher salary than previously. The archivist, the librarian, is to be blamed for wishing to stay alive as much as perhaps the author. <laughs> perhaps as much as the author wishes to stay alive. Stay alive because <laughs> well, really, it does seem that if, if uh, manuscripts are worth discussing on a program like this, they the government should consider them worth something really financially. And nationally, I mean, the, 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 it should be a government project, I think, that, the, that if the, the government uh, comes in at all, like the National Council for the Arts, surely the, 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 the manuscripts are a part of the national heritage. Well, it is always quite pitiful, the national heritage, yes, but it's quite pitiful 
for the life genius. Now I'm talking about those who may be misunderstood, who die poor, and where then the estate, or you might say a profiteer or an agent, will become rich. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, and um, is there any final word on the disposition of manuscripts? The disposition give, of give. <laughs> I would like to say that if anybody wishes to read a great love correspondence, we should all go to Your Isadora. It is a tearjerker. And published, it is a jointly, book. published jointly by Random House and the New York Public Library, which I think is very important when you're asking for a book to mention the publisher. It's a very nice publication line, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're grateful to the author. Thank to the you editor. very much indeed, Dr. Leila Sladitz, and thank you very much, Francis Stigmuller, for being on WNYC today under the auspices of PEN Pen. Thank you. Thank you.